Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. On the 3rd of April, 1968, one of the most controversial political leaders in American history flew into Memphis, Tennessee. He was there to offer his support to a strike which had just entered its 52nd day. The sanitation workers' strike had become a source of bitter tension between black activists and city officials. It also marked a key stage in the development of Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign, intended to culminate with another march on Washington, D.C. The work was very physical at the time. They'd ride on the back of these sanitation trucks. They'd go out in people's yards, pick up tubs full of maggots and garbage and carry it on their heads, take it to the back of a truck and push it up to a higher level and someone else would pick it up and throw it in a waste bin in the truck. That's Michael Honey, author of The Promised Land, Martin Luther King, and the Fight for Economic Justice. Uh, The people who did this kind of work that I'm describing were all African-American. There were about 1,300 of them. Uh, The supervisors were almost all white. The truck drivers were mostly white, I think some black. Uh, But the people who did the, you know, pickup work and so forth were all black. And it was considered not something a white worker would ever do. What did, what did King say to these sanitation workers that night? There were a lot of painful things that had already happened. So two workers were killed in the back of a sanitation truck because of faulty equipment. The workers went on strike. When they held a um, demonstration downtown, the police attacked them with mace By the time King got there, it was six weeks into this, and the black ministers and churches had joined hands with the black workers. And it's one of the few times in the South where you see uh, white trade union people joining with black workers in a situation that's as much about civil rights as it is about labor rights. People were also hungry, and their families were going hungry. They didn't have a strike fund. So when King got there, the magic of King was his ability to take a local situation that was quite pragmatic and even mundane, and then amplifying that into a campaign for human rights and explaining to the people in that situation the full meaning of what they were doing. And One of the phrases from that great speech is, all labor has dignity. And he was able, without notes, without really being briefed on the situation, to just understand right away what this was all about and put it in language that workers and the middle class, uh, the preachers and the teachers and the students would understand. Part of why we have this mistaken assumption that King 
only turns to economic justice in the last year of its life is in part because of the way that the media often covered Dr. King. Jean Theo Harris is the author of A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. But I think we have to remember how relentlessly King is attacked for being a communist, uh, how much sort of the federal government surveils the Kings, in part because, and, and using the justification that he is potentially affiliated with communists. Um, and so I, th- I think we have to contextualize that reluctance in the climate that constantly questioned sort of King as a possible subversive, as a possible extremist, as a possible communist sympathizer. We can't forget the climate and the ways that King's push for uh, racial justice, social justice, is constantly being attacked and maligned as subversive, as potentially uh, communist or anti-American. Poor People's Campaign was kind of go-for-broke strategy that King initiated mainly in response to summer after summer of urban rioting and the election of a conservative Congress in 1966 that was pulling back on commitments to the war on poverty. Thomas Jackson is the author of From Civil Rights to Human Rights, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Struggle for Economic Justice. Well, the point was to bring about 3,000 poor people to Washington, D.C., to camp to make their conditions visible and to engage in massive civil disobedience on a scale that it had not been engaged in before. By 1967, King sees that you really need to give poor people hope and you need to galvanize a movement that would have as much of a shock impact as a major riot. So he is talking about what he calls dislocating the functions of a city, trying to shut, as they had Mm. in Birmingham, that was probably the what he had most in mind, those days, seven days where business just came to a, a halt in Birmingham because of the mass protests and arrests. So that's the scale of things. It's very different from anything he had contemplated earlier. Now, we think of King today as really a unifying figure Yet, during the Poor People's Campaign, a liberal newspaper like the New York Times called it a formula for discord. Can you give us a sense of the opposition to King's Poor People's Campaign? You can see it in a disinformation campaign coordinated by the FBI. You can see it in news editorials. You can see it in a flood of panicked letters from ordinary Americans. King in February had enlisted the promise of Stokely Carmichael and the Washington, D.C. Black United Front that they would support a nonviolent march. But prominent newspapers, as you suggest, New York Times, Washington Post, doubted that anything other than violence could occur. The FBI put editorials in local newspapers. Here's a quote. Reverend King is more dangerous than Stokely Carmichael because of his nonviolent masquerade. He continues to talk nonviolence even as it erupts all around him. So if you look at these letters to Lyndon Johnson in the Johnson Library, One man from Kirkland, Ohio, writes, If you do nothing, as in the past, to stop the king, then you may as well set the torch to Washington, D.C. yourself. Please stop them before it's too late. A woman writes from Temple, Texas, 
quote, just pouring millions of our tax money into projects to help the Negroes won't prevent their rioting since the cause is not poverty of the Negro, but communist plans to weaken, divide, and destroy our country. King's PhD dissertation advisor picks up on this, L. Howard DeWolf, and he writes, Dr. King, nonviolent protests would probably lead to disorder and lawlessness and possibly a fascist-type revolution under military leaders which might put the country under the direct rule of the military-industrial complex, ending civil liberties and civil rights and precipitating World War III. This is one of his lifetime liberal supporters picking up on a kind of panic. The great irony is that it was not the Poor People's March that fomented riots, it was the King assassination. Hate is a dangerous force and it is an injurious force because it uh, injures uh, the object of hate as well as the subject of hate. It injures the hater as well as the hated. And it's very interesting that uh, many of the psychiatrists are saying to us now that the strange things that happen in the subconscious and Many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate, and this is why many are saying love or perish. Today on Backstory, the legacy of Martin Luther King on the 50th anniversary of his death. King spent most of April 4th, 1968, resting. Though he did not know it, the plane which had carried King from Atlanta to Memphis had been subject to a bomb threat, which came in the form of a phone call to Eastern Airlines. At 5 o'clock that day, King began gathering the staff of his Southern Christian Leadership Conference to visit the home of the Reverend Billy Kyles. Unbeknownst to King and his staff, a drifter had checked into a flophouse across the road under the false name of Eric Galt. James Earl Ray had bought a 30-06 Remington Game Master rifle while passing through Birmingham, Alabama, and a pair of Bushnell binoculars in Memphis. He was watching everyone who arrived and left King's hotel room, room number 306. By all accounts, King was in a good mood that afternoon. He had come out on the balcony to say hello to saxophonist Ben Branch. King said, Ben, make sure you play Precious Lord, Take My Hand in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. Branch replied, okay, Doc, I will. Then James Roll Ray fired. News of King's shooting sent shockwaves across the country. Riots broke out all across the nation in cities like Detroit, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, Baltimore, and Chicago. But no city faced as much violence and upheaval as the capital, Washington, D.C. Images of troops guarding the White House with machine guns while plumes of smoke snaked into the sky were beamed across America and the world. And how to deal with the riots proved to be a leadership challenge for both President Lyndon B. Johnson and the city's first black mayor, Walter Washington. Historian Samuel Walker says the tragic news reached the Capitol shortly after 7 p.m. People began to gather at 14th and U Street, which was kind of the epicenter of black Washington and a major commercial area for uh, black Washington. Um, and the crowd was sad, it was concerned, and it was in shock. Shortly after word came through uh, that King had died from his wounds, 
Uh, it wasn't too long after that that the rioting began as a way of venting frustration and anger and resentment. Now, when the riots erupt in April of 1968 in Washington, D.C., they end up being really dramatic in terms of their consequences. You have 13 people killed, thousands injured, some 8,000 people arrested. And what were the conditions in America's urban communities that seemed to make the King assassination just the natural explosive element? Yeah, uh, poverty, uh, deprivation, uh, poor schools, uh, soaring crime rates, uh, joblessness, high unemployment, um, and and perhaps uh, most discouraging, limited opportunities. Mm-hmm. So it it was a conversion of of uh, conditions. Uh, once the word came through, the king had died. They were angry. Uh, and and uh, there's a sense of helplessness, and a way to deal with that was to uh, start looting. Uh, there was some arson, or at least some fires being set, and the police were outnumbered. So things were out of control uh, for s- several hours, but then calmed down. And people went home, there was a brief rainstorm, and that helped. And there was a concern that things would break out again. Right. The assumption was, based on the experiences from previous uh, rioting, that if things broke out again, it wouldn't be until uh, after dark on Friday. Did that happen? Was was there another flare-up after the first day had subsided? Things got really bad on Friday, and that's when things really went out of control. There was more looting of stores. Stores that hadn't been attacked on Thursday were cleaned out on Friday. Uh, and one of the uh, major stores there was Morton's department store that 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 served the people of that community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, on Friday afternoon, after things got bad on 8th Street, uh, looters went in, pretty much cleaned out the store of its merchandise. Uh, and once everyone had left, or at least they thought most everyone had left, um, uh, a guy who'd been watching what was going on, watching looters come out of Morton's department store, uh, stepped up and threw a firebomb into one of the open doors or open windows of the store, and within a very short time, it was up in flames and burned to the ground. Mm. Uh, what what we found out later was that there was at least one teenager in there who, who didn't get out in time and who was burned beyond recognition. Now, as the riot is spreading, at some point, you, you literally have plumes of smoke in the wake of the Capitol building, right? I mean, it, it gets to the point where you can see the center, the center of government, national government, and the riot literally juxtaposing the same shots. Yeah, that's exactly right. When the Capitol dome was lighted, uh, the lighted dome was, was largely obscured by the smoke that mm. was rising from, from the city, depending on, on where you were. But President Johnson said he looked out the window at the White House, and all he could see was smoke. And he said, what must people be thinking about what's going on? What's Johnson's sense of how to remedy this problem? Johnson didn't know. Johnson was torn between, on, on the one hand, and he clearly recognized that, 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 that the rioters had legitimate grievances. Mm-hmm. But uh, he also was outraged that they were using violence to try to redress their, their grievances. By Friday afternoon, uh, early afternoon, once the rioting resumed, mm-hmm. uh, Mayor Washington was saying, Mr. President, you know, you have to call out the troops, even if we use a National Guard. Uh, the National Guard in Washington was only 2,000 strong. The police force was maybe 3,000 strong. And that was not enough in, those numbers were not enough in themselves to, to contain what was going on. 
Uh, so he was saying, we, we need troops. Uh, but Johnson did not want to call out troops because he was afraid uh, that, uh, you know, I don't want to call out troops and, and have them shooting women and children. Uh, and he finally only called out troops after he sent out three of his advisors, uh, and they quickly concluded that the police could not possibly restore order. That was his first step toward restoring order. How would you describe the long-term impact of the riots that erupted in the wake of King's assassination? I mean, describe them in the, uh, on the scale of Washington, D.C., but also in terms of the, the country and the way that the country's sentiment might have changed after seeing D.C. in flames. The, the, the impact on, on, on the riot areas in Washington was enormous, um, especially Upper 7th Street, 14th Street, the whole uh, run from uh, U Street up, up uh, for 20 or, or more blocks, and 8th Street were uh, pretty much burned out areas, uh, very depressed areas uh, until the early 1990s, so a quarter of a century. Uh, the, the the impact in terms of, of the country is interesting and and rather uh, hard to figure out because we haven't had major riots or many major riots since 1968. Los Angeles, uh, 1992, and and Baltimore a couple of years ago are exceptions, but they are exceptions. And scholars and 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 journalists and others have have tried to figure out why that is and. Uh, the bottom line that everyone has come up with is that we don't know why there haven't been more riots. It's not as though conditions have improved. Uh, conditions in the struggling areas of most cities, including Washington, um, are, are, are no better than they were in, in 1968, in some ways worse. Mm -hmm. One reason that I wrote the book was to kind right. of heed the lessons of history. Mm. I think there's reason for concern that we could see it happen again. Sam Walker is the author of Most of 14th Street is Gone, The Washington, D.C. Riots of 1968. After Martin Luther King's death, his widow, Coretta Scott King, set about preserving and shaping his reputation. She set up and directed the King Center in Atlanta and pushed tirelessly for the creation of a Martin Luther King Day holiday. The journalist Dr. Barbara Reynolds was Coretta Scott King's longtime friend and co-author of her life story, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. I asked Dr. Reynolds how she first met Coretta Scott King. Well, let's go back to about 1972. The Chicago Tribune assigned me to do a cover story uh, about her. And at that point, uh, Coretta Scott King was like the first lady of civil rights. Mm -hmm. And I was a young reporter, so you have to imagine how that made me feel, I mean, to go and even talk to uh, a Coretta Scott King. And um, she was was in the basement of a, a church where she showed me the plans for the King Center. Now, at the end of King's life, he had fallen greatly out of favor among many Americans. He was deeply unpopular, in part because of his views about the war. Certainly, he hadn't stopped pushing for various forms of racial justice. How much did she get concerned about what his reputation had been in legacy terms? Well, first of all, we have to understand that she was the builder. She was the architect 
of his legacy because when he was assassinated, she was the, one of the few people that wanted and made it her sole business to institutionalize his legacy, which was nonviolence. At the center, for example, they taught nonviolence to thousands. That was um, nonviolence was not just something that they said. It really was a program. But also in the center, she did one step more. And this is very important. She set up the apparatus for the King holiday that's now celebrated in at least 100 right. countries. And that, you know, I always it disturbed me all the time when people would say, yeah, she is important to the King holiday. But in, in the King holiday, when we're all celebrating it, we often don't even mention her name. But she had 76 coalitions that she formed to get this going. Uh, she lobbied every senator in Congress to get this going. She organized 5 million signatures mm. to get this established. Right. And so this was not just something you should flick off and say, uh, yeah, she started, she helped. No, she helped organize. It took her 15 years of her life to do that. And I think without the holiday, I think maybe he might have been um, forgotten. He would not be larger in life uh, as he is now. Now, somewhat infamously, Coretta Scott King was not allowed to speak at the August 1963 March on Washington, nor were any women allowed to speak at that high water mark, really, in, in the forms of direct action in the civil rights struggle. Did she talk at all with you about oh, what it felt like did. to be kept? <laughs> Please, by all means. You know, she didn't get personally rattled and upset about a lot of things. But think about this march, because Rosa Parks couldn't even speak. Right. <laughs> now, right. I mean, you know, this is why this happened, because this brave uh, lady activist, NAACP secretary, she refused to move to the back of the bus. And that brought Dr. King and all the rest of them. She could even speak. You know, she had four children, so she couldn't march always. But she had marched with some of the great campaigns with, with Martin. And so when they, uh, she was, you know, reading his speech and talking about Martin, maybe you ought to add this, and he gave the mm. speech and it electrified the nation. After the speech, they got in the limousine and they headed over to the White House to meet with John Kennedy. But they got up to the White House door and they told the driver, well, send the ladies back to the hotel. And, you know, she said, but Martin, I want to go see the president. And he says, this is not on the agenda. And wow. she was very upset. And she went back to the hotel. She was very upset because she said, you know, John F. Kennedy had been so supportive and get Martin out of jail. He had made a call to her. And she wanted to thank him personally. And, of course, a couple months later, uh, he died. And she wow. said, I'm so sorry because I never uh, got to see him. But you have to realize how sexist the black Baptist preachers were. Even when she was trying to build the King Center, so often they criticized her. And these same men who supported her husband didn't want to support her. 
So, I mean, sexism is not something we see today was really alive and well among the movement people. Now, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death. And much of what Coretta Scott King did over the time after her husband's passing, as you point out, has not really been fully appreciated. But what would you say were some of the best examples of Coretta Scott King's political vision, her stick-to-itiveness, her wherewithal in the decades that were left after her husband had passed away? Well, you you have to understand that she was like a political queenmaker. I saw what happens when you really have influence inside uh, politics because more monies were funded to black colleges, uh, more Poverty uh, programs were were amazed so that people of all color who needed help could get help. You know, I haven't seen that kind of influence myself since. I'm really curious to know about this process of co-authoring this book with Coretta Scott King. I mean, she was looking at the full sweep of her life, thinking, I'm sure, about what the book would mean for future generations. What was that process like, and what did she imagine and hope would come of her own life history? When I was at the center where her crypt is beside Dr. Martin Luther King, her husband's crypt, I saw an mm. eternal flame, and I became fixated at that. And it was because it was something she had told me in the book. She said, I want people to know that I was committed to leaving an eternal flame built on love that would never be extinguished. I wanted this flame to touch lives, communities, and nations. I wanted it to ignite and inspire. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be an urgent call to community and public service. Um, And she talked about it. She said, every heartbreak I ever had preceded a breakthrough. Every thorn Mm. that pierced me positioned me for the next level of challenges. My story is a freedom song from within my soul. It is a story of struggle. And when it is time for me to end this journey, I will count it all joy. When I was thinking of the contributions to our country, the man that we're honoring today A passage attributed to the American poet John Greenleaf Whittier comes to mind. Each crisis brings its word and deed. In America in the 50s and 60s, one of the important crises we faced was racial discrimination. The man whose words and deeds in that crisis stirred our nation to the very depths of its soul was Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., On November 2, 1983, President Ronald Reagan signed the Martin Luther King Day holiday into law. It was a holiday that Ronald Reagan had opposed for decades, but in a speech in the Rose Garden in front of members of Congress and members of Martin Luther King's family, he praised King as a man who awakened something strong and true in the American people. In 1968, Martin Luther King was gunned down by a brutal assassin. His life cut short at the age of 39, but those 39 short years had changed America forever. Session ended with the guests bursting into an impromptu rendition of the civil rights anthem, We Shall Overcome. King had already appeared on a U.S. postage stamp in 1979, but the national holiday in his name was a crucial step to establishing him as a national symbol. 
Today, Martin Luther King is celebrated in children's books, inspirational posters, and a monument in Washington, D.C. within sight of the Lincoln Memorial, where King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. A Gallup poll in 2011 found 94% of Americans have a positive view of Martin Luther King. In August 1966, a Gallup poll found that King was viewed unfavorably by 63% of Americans. So how did King make this journey from controversial civil rights leader to American icon? First point was the assassination itself, where the way King died uh, positioned him to become a martyr. Jason Sokol is the author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. The other thing is that King's death itself accelerated the move toward radicalism and militancy among African Americans. And that, that was something that was going on along, among young Americans in general. You know, the weathermen gathered steam and momentum in 1969 and beyond. So a lot of the alternatives that were offered in 68, 69, and through the 70s were these more violent alternatives. And when, uh, when King's message was counterposed against those alternatives, he, he began to seem even more moderate. And, and so I think a lot of white Americans could latch on to parts of King's vision that they were comfortable with. For instance, every American today probably knows the line from the I Have a Dream speech where King talked about how, how he longed for the day when his children would be judged um, not by the color of their skin, by the content of their character. Now, that's a message that a lot of white Americans can embrace. Later in the same speech, King talked about the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. He talked about the whirlwinds of revolt that would shake the nation if, if justice didn't come soon. So I think, um, you know, there were parts of King's career in life where he really did offer this vision of interracialism and colorblindness and I think uh, over the years, once he was gone, it became easy for, for white Americans to embrace one part of his message, that the interracialism and colorblindness part, and conveniently forget about the parts that were more threatening. You know, King's challenge to American imperialism, King's challenge to capitalism itself. So has the creation of King the icon come at the expense of King, the radical political leader? Gene Theo Harris. I think we like a king who is easy. What we don't tend to want is a king who challenges us, who shows us our complacencies, who calls us out for wanting easy change, wanting change that won't cost us anything. I mean, I think we, we like an association with king, right? Uh, but we like that only as far as it makes us feel good about ourselves. And, and the minute it holds a mirror to our contemporary actions, it becomes less appealing. He was safer dead than alive. You know, for most Americans, he was more acceptable. That's Claiborne Carson, the director of the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute at Stanford University. You know, you could see it happening the moment he died. Look at who came to the funeral. People who would not have been seen next to him when he was alive, especially from the political world, you know, they all wanted to be in the front seat at the funeral. And people who had known 
and followed, Martin Luther King couldn't even get in. There was already that beginning of the reinterpretation of Martin Luther King, that he was the great heroic figure of American citizenship, you know, because that's that's the part of him that had become part of the self-conception of the nation. The Civil Rights Act kind of took away that stain of the Jim Crow system. And so if you identified him with that, that was something that embarrassed the nation and the world. You know, but... Uh, but what he was doing during the th last three years of his life, of course, uh, was quickly forgotten. Tom, help me out here. Today we go into schools and see pictures of Martin Luther King. Uh, he is so much a symbol of uh, bringing the nation together, if you will. How did the king who was despised by so many uh, at the time, uh, how how did the king, who was portrayed as a communist and a radical by the FBI, how did that king become domesticated? It's a complicated process. It's happening before the assassination. You can see King speaking differently to different audiences. He's labeled a moderate militant by Augie Meyer in 1965, not because he was both at the same time, but because he spoke to different audiences based on his judgment of their values, what they were ready to hear, what it was safe for him to say. It's no surprise that in the dream speech, he would appeal to the Christian and the American nationalist ideals and share this optimistic hope that one day his children would be judged on their character and not their color. But nor is it surprising that a month later, with 20,000 trade unionists in Madison Square Garden, that he would include a much more radical line from the standard dream speech. I have a dream that my children would grow up in a nation where property and privilege are widely distributed, a nation which does not take necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. King has become quite a hero of those who are identified uh, on the right side of the political spectrum. Ronald Reagan and a number of neoconservatives have uh, embraced King as a symbol for America. Absolutely. And there are elements of symbolism and pieces of rhetoric that support a kind of conservative approach or a celebration of America as post-racial. My best example is when Reagan signed the Holiday Bill after years of debate, well, not only did he say, you know, we won't find until 2027 whether he was really a communist. What he did is he went to black schools and lectured that Martin Luther King believed that all of you should be judged by your character and not your color as individuals. His dream was the American dream. It's a dream that made America great and it has come to pass, and you now all have opportunity because of Dr. King. And had he lived, he would support my policies of Reaganomics because an unfettered marketplace is the best arena in which that kind of individual freedom can thrive. He would have opposed affirmative action because it's not the state, it's God that gives you your rights 
and affirmative action is a violation of that sacred principle of individual liberty. You can quote King to support that, and he did. So that ideological contest, at the same time, there were marches on Washington, right, that were bringing Reagan to task. Look at the photographs of the 1983 march that I attended. And they are all taking Reaganomics to task for violating King's economic dream of a real war on poverty, of a guaranteed annual income, and of affirmative action that would uplift suppressed minorities. I think if we listen to Dr. King, right, Dr. King is calling out systemic racism in the United States. There's this beautiful quote that he writes at the end of his life where he's talking about how black people took white people on the word that equality means equality, when many white people sort of take equality as just improvement and are not committed to equality at all, right? That Dr. King would be very dismayed at the ways that he is now deployed in the service of inequality, in the service of standing in the way of movements for justice today. You know, we have Mike Huckabee, you know, calling on Ferguson protesters to be more like King. Or we have uh, then-Mayor Kasim Reed um, saying Dr. King would never take a highway, um, which is a gross distortion of who King was and what he did. But is it possible, 50 years after his death, to reconnect King the icon with King the radical political leader? Claiborne Carson. I think it is because you have a new generation coming up who are dealing with the problems left behind by the civil rights struggle. You know, that, that's why I think the relevance of his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? You know, he was writing that after the passage of civil rights legislation. So contemporary movements are basically making the same argument that he made back in 1967. They're saying these changes were important, but they didn't deal with the fundamental problems in America. The fundamental problems was not this uh, um, Southern Jim Crow system. Uh, you know, that, that was an important issue that need, needed to be taken care of. But once you've done that, it just makes the South like the rest of the nation. And it's not like black people are thriving in the rest of the nation. So uh, I think that's where we are now. We haven't answered his question, where do we go from here? Well, I think it's worth starting by recalling some of our own memories of Martin Luther King's assassination. I'm embarrassed to say that I have no specific memory of that day. And what makes it more embarrassing is that I remember distinctly when Robert Kennedy was assassinated. I remember distinctly when John F. Kennedy was assassinated back in 1963. I have no specific memories. Ed, do you have something authentic from the moment? Well, to the extent that anything that we see through television is authentic, right? Right. Because the memory that I had before is, frankly, uh, my dad railing at the TV whenever Martin Luther King would come on. 
and uh, about, you know, just what a misguided, self-indulgent figure that he was and that nothing good is going to come from all this. And then, frankly, the shame uh, of the assassination when we realized it was in Tennessee, you know, that it was our own state who yeah. had killed us. And then suddenly a little bit of shame, the things that, you know, had been said around the television set. You know, uh, there was a clear sense after this. You could feel a, the ground shift of like, oh, kind of a microcosm of what the country went through a little bit later. But, you know, um, and I think a certain sense, too, that, uh, wow, after King is gone and there's still all the anger, but there's not this one person that we can talk about and focus on. It just it, it suddenly felt like things were sort of chaotic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then when Robert Kennedy's assassinated a few months later, it just felt like the whole country is falling apart is the, the feeling I had as a 15-year-old. Hmm. Go ahead. I have a memory of the year after the assassination hmm. um, being in school and singing songs about Martin Luther King and not really knowing who he was, but knowing he was a hero who somehow or other died to make things better. What grade were you in, Joanne? Second grade. Wow. So that is my vague memory that somehow or other, because the songs were like, you know, sort of solemn, but but that he was a great hero and somehow or other that that he had died to make things better. Now I have stronger memories about Robert Kennedy's assassination because what I remember in that case was my mother crying. Um, And that's all I remember. But I remember that because that was not something I think I'd ever seen before. And it's interesting. Those are such different memories. I have a memory of crying associated with Robert Kennedy and a memory of of singing associated with the death of, of Martin Luther King. Well, Nathan, were you even born in 1968? No, no. But I actually find it really striking that there's a way in which, as just a young person, right, King has kind of left his mark on all of us. Right? I mean, or the absence of that mark causes us to feel a particular way. I mean, that, to me, I think really deserves some some attention because as a young person, you know, I really did enter kind of late middle school, high school, you know, in the 1990s. By that point, the Martin Luther King Day, you know, celebration had been almost probably a decade, you know, in the making. Um, And it was one of those things that felt very easy as a young person, especially a young black person, to just kind of accept King as a hero. I mean, he was served up to us on a silver platter every January for King Day, every February for Black History Month. Um, You know, and anytime you saw documentaries about Eyes on the Prize, you know, that came, came during the summers, right, that too was another way of really making him iconic. Um, But I also remember really stepping back from associating Mm -hmm. with King because Mm -hmm. it felt as if he was just a two-dimensional figure that kind of loved everybody and didn't really have a complicated ideology. That's how he was presented to us as as young people, you know. Um, And so it was only when I read more, in fact, that I began to really appreciate him and the depth of his thinking um, and really the, 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 the sophisticated nature that he tried to think through some of the complicated questions about segregation, about the military, about poverty. Um, And, you know, it's, I think, really important that we remember just how Mm -hmm. much 
our current young folks are adopting a, a vision of King or a version of King that can be sometimes really flat. And I think it's it's really incumbent on us to try as best we can to, you know, obviously complicate that, but then also to maybe widen the way that we think about King in history, to think about all the people who were supporting him and all the broader cast of characters that came out of that period. I mean, there's always a danger of associating just one movement with one person. He's the only American that has his own holiday. We have a Columbus Day, we have a Martin Luther King Day, and then that's pretty much it, right? We, we bundle together President's Day for a couple people. Um, and so I think there's always a, a question about how much do we put on this one person to do emotional work for us, you know? Well, I think there are other elements on this that are, as they say, counterintuitive. I want to try out a an idea on you folks and see what you think. I believe that Martin Luther King may have done more for the economic growth of the American South, of black and white, which as we now know has, for the first time in American history, black people moving to the South for the first time. I think King throwing off the burden of segregation freed the South to become an international player economically with all the car companies that are building factories there now um, and all the corporate headquarters and the the way the South is booming. I think as long as the South uh, labored under segregation, it was never going to do that. Um, So what would you say to that, that that was the it freed an entire region of the nation to participate in the global economy in ways that it had never been able to do before. That that is um that's a that's a heavy a heavy point and um so th- I think a couple of things um the f- the first is that the South you know especially in in urban areas like Atlanta like New Orleans like Miami um there were there was an, an earlier effort to try to remove the stain of segregation they, yeah. you know people were trying to keep the Klan from being able to burn crosses in public or outlawing hoods like through the 1940s and 50s but you're absolutely right that there was a, a way in which King brought some attention that forced politicians at the state level, who oftentimes were, you know, opposed to these more urban growth initiatives, um, to to really step in line and and think about the economic future of the South. I mean, it's hard to make a moral argument that segregation is justified in light of the very dramatic stance that he and many others took in in front of cameras, in front of police um, through the 1960s. So that's a critical piece of it. But there again, it's funny because I think King was still widely unpopular even in the South, right? There were conservative business elements, you know, among African-Americans, among whites who just didn't like the direct action moment. Um, and so it, it's it's funny because boycotts don't grow the economy. Right. You know, bad, bad press don't grow the economy. And so there was a weird kind of a symbiote, I guess, relationship between the protests that helped to force people to reform, but that also the fact that you had to deal with a, a temporary lag in one's reputation or in one's, you know, appeal to northern uh, money in, in light of the fact that these challenges were being made so publicly. Yeah, and I think that's right. And you think about Atlanta being the primary beneficiary of this, being most closely associated with King and, you know, the city too busy to hate and so forth. Mm -hmm. I remember Mm -hmm. going to the Atlanta Olympics in 1996 and seeing elaborate displays about Martin Luther King at, at, you know, I think I picture this at the stadium during, you know, the celebrations um, at the outset. And it was like, but why are you celebrating him? What did he actually do? Well, you can't Mm. say because you would have to admit that this place 
where we're sitting had been based on segregation for a century before that, on slavery before that. So he was so taken out of context, it was just, it's kind of like, you know, Johan's experience as a second grader uh, that we can celebrate him without actually talking about the evil that he overcame. And I, I just remember, you know, feeling like a very grumpy historian while other people are, you know, sort of, you know, misty eyed about this and kind of going, yeah, but and nobody around the world would have any idea of what he actually did because we can't name the evil. Michael Honey is the author of To the Promised Land, Martin Luther King and the Fight for Economic Justice. Jason Sokol is the author of The Heavens Might Crack, The Death and Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Claiborne Carson is the author of Martin's Dream, My Journey and the Legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Jean Theo Harris is the author of A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Thomas Jackson is the author of From Civil Rights to Human Rights, Martin Luther King Jr. and the Struggle for Economic Justice. The audio of Martin Luther King comes from the Studs Terkel Radio Archive. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep this conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddock, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishosh, Sequoia Carrillo, Korean Thomas, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. Thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities.